The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thank you, Blair. I would encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at uh, verses 20 and 21 in a, in a moment, but uh, I wanted to, while you're turning there, just thank uh, Redemption for your love and your support and your partnership in this gospel ministry in the form of making disciples through planting churches. And South Austin, Buda, and Kyle is where our core group is forming. We have about 40 adults and 20 kids, and we're just months away from launching. God willing, I can't wait for that. And uh, if you know someone that's need, in need of a Christ-exalting, disciple-making church in that area, I would love to connect with you and, and to them. So let's read uh, just the two verses that, uh, that I've been assigned to walk you through this morning. It's Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 20 and verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children. I'm sorry, I skipped verse 20. Let's back it up. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is God's word, and it is for God's people. There's the story about the young man who wrote his first book, he entitled it Ten Commandments for Raising Kids. He later married and became a first-time dad, and he revised his book, Ten Suggestions for Raising Kids. Sometime later, another child arrived, then a third, and once more, he revised his book, Ten Hints for Raising Kids. Then another child arrived, and he became a first-time grandparent. And the final revision of his book was made the title being, Ten Things I Don't Know About Raising Kids. I've had the privilege of being a dad now for 34 years times six. We have four boys and two daughters. And uh, we have amazing children. And it is one of my greatest privileges and blessings to be a dad, times six, and now to be a grandpa. They affectionately call me Pappy. We have uh, seven grandkids, age six on down. And so as I stand before you this morning, I confess to you that I am still a work in progress as a parent and now as a grandfather. So I'm not speaking down to any of you. I am learning with you. And my first reaction when I get to Colossians 3 is to say, Lord, this job is overwhelming. It is all consuming. It is massive. And you give us two short verses. And really, if you look at verse 20, it's primarily for the child. And so it's like, really, one verse? Are you kidding? 
But then when you step back and remember that the message of Colossians and the message of the Bible is not about child-centered homes and it is not about spouse-centered homes and it is not even about focus on the family as wonderful as those blessings are in all of our lives. The focus from start to finish is on Jesus Christ. And so that's why I've entitled the message Parenting that exalts Christ. It is the point of the book of Colossians. Back in chapter 1, after the Apostle Paul details the, uh, the, the exalts Christ as the creator, as the head of the church, he says, so that he might have the preeminence or first place in all things. And parents, the point of your home is not your child. It is not to have a Facebook perfect picture family. That is not the point of your home. The point of your home, according to Colossians, according to the gospel, is that you have a place where the gospel is going to grow. Not just for a day or a season, but for the rest of your life. And so I've made this our preaching point, and then we're just going to kind of unpackage it, and you can write it down, and that is this. Parenting is a great and lifelong opportunity for gospel growth. What an opportunity we have, parents, not just for a season, but for life. One thing that I wrongly assumed is that once my kids launched from home that my job was finished. Now I laugh at that because there's a book that's rightly entitled, You Never Stop Being a Parent. Do I get any amens on that? You never stop. I mean, it is a lifelong opportunity. It is not a one and done gospel opportunity. It is a lifelong opportunity. And so be encouraged by that. Be challenged by that. Uh, and I love the fact that redemption is a family equipping church. We are not primarily about entertaining our kids and our students. We are about equipping you, the pastors and the elders and the small group leaders and the redemption kids and redemption student leaders are here to encourage you, to equip you, to help you, to come alongside of you in your role, parents, as the primary shepherd dad and assistant mom of your own family. And I love that about this church. It is a church given to exalting Christ and to assisting and encouraging uh, shepherds of homes. I love that. And I hope and trust that that will be true at Living Hope as well. And so... Uh, I want us to just kind of jump into this by we're, we're really going to look at four points. The first two are going to come directly through verse 20, then verse 21. And then for the third point, we're going to reach out to a couple of other scriptures. And then the final point, we're just going to make some broad observations. So if you're taking notes, put this down for point number one. Parents expect obedience from your kids. Now, I know if you look at the verse, it says children. And by the way, that's speaking of toddlers and teenagers. It's a general word for kids that speaks of anyone that is still under the authority of their parents. And then if we were to go to Ephesians chapter 6, we would see a double emphasis 
that obedience is the act and honoring parents is the attitude. We don't want kids who just say, you know what, I, you know, when the teacher tells him to sit down and he doesn't, and finally he sits down and he says to the teacher, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. So the, the Bible gives us both, doesn't it? Here the focus is on the act of obedience. It is this idea of listening underneath your parents. It is a different word than the word submit that we saw earlier in the context of wives submitting to their husband. It's not that word. This is a word which means to listen under your parents, to really listen to your parents and then do it. And what he emphasizes is that when kids obey their parents, that is pleasing to the Lord. I think the Spirit of God is very focused on pleasing the Lord. He's to have first place in, any, in everything. And Paul prayed that we would be fully pleasing to the Lord. And that goes down to the children. By the way, the word saints in chapter 1 may imply that some in the congregation at Colossae were believing children. They would have been in the hearing of this letter being read to the church. And the expectation is obedience. So let's just start there, parents. I know it's not the only thing, but it is a bedrock issue. Let me just play out a scenario that you may have experienced or overheard. Johnny, we're at the grocery store or the restaurant. Johnny, uh, let's go. I mean it, Johnny. Johnny, put this down. I'm going to count to ten. Johnny, we're going to leave you here. Johnny, if you come now, I'll get you some ice cream. Johnny, I mean it right now. And you know what Johnny's thinking? Uh-uh. You don't mean it. You don't mean it. It would be interesting to take your smartphone and hit record on how conversations go down between you and your kids. And if you hear four, five, six, seven times having to repeat yourself over and over again, adding incentives, adding threats, pleading with them, then Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem. The Holy Spirit is saying in verse 20, for a Christ-exalting home, it's not, parents, about kid-proofing your house. It's about house-proofing your kids. You see, the expectation is that he will not pull the tablecloth off the table or, or that she will not stick her finger in the electrical socket. And so what we see is that kids are great at a television show called Let's Make a Deal. Kids are a very, very good at negotiating with their parents. Let, let's uh, test the parameters. Let's push the limits. They, they are sharp. They, they figure it out. They, they, they figure it out quickly that whether you say what you mean and mean what you say. And of course, Proverbs 22.15 starts off this way. Folly is bound up in the heart of the child. And so the child that's type A and in a very well-behaved home, and the child who's born into a, uh, a home that uh, has no rules, both come into the world with folly bound up inside. 
Someone put it like this in their list of rules for toddlers. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If it looks like it's mine, it is mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you are playing with it and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, you can have it. How many of you as parents had to role play to your little child? Let me show you how to throw a temper tantrum. Uh, let me show you how to grab that toy when there's 20 to choose from and you fight with your sister Susie over that one toy. You see, kids, by nature, are experts at disobedience. They have to be taught to obey. And that's why Proverbs 22.15 goes on to say, not only is folly bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. That kind of echoes what Paul says in the parallel passage, although he gets more specific in Proverbs uh, when he says that we're to bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. It's not just that discipline and spanking are synonymous, but if you do a study, parents, through the book of Proverbs, you do a word study on the Hebrew word for rod, or just the English word for rod. Just do a, a, a search for that. And I think for, for many of us who maybe have grown up in, in situations where the rod was either inappropriately used or it was used in anger and not in redemptive love, it, this, is, this is hard to even talk about. And so I would just really encourage you, especially you that have younger children or even elementary age children, if, if you are struggling with that, to, to seek out one of the elders, seek out your small group leader and have that conversation. Because God has given us many tools for correction, but this is just one spoke in the wheel, but it is one of the spokes in the discipline wheel. So uh, that is something that I would commend to you. So if verse 20 is, parents, we should expect obedience, and I know there's a lot more to unpack there. We could just spend the rest of our time there, but let's move on to verse 21. I think what we can take away from verse 21 is that we need to treat our kids properly. He says, fathers, and by the way, the word fathers is, is, is nuanced in such a way that it includes mothers. And let's just be clear that God has called us as men to be the head of our home. And our wife is equal to us, many times way more gifted and, 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 and wise in certain areas than we are. But yet, men, God has called us to lead out to shepherd our own homes, to be involved with our children. And so, but, but this could also be applied to mothers on Mother's Day and every other day. So I think we could say, parents, do not provoke your children. Think of the word provoke. The word provoke has the idea of kindling a fire into flame. 
Now that's a good thing if it's a cold night on a camping trip. You want to kindle a fire. But notice where this kindling leads. It leads to the child becoming discouraged. To the child losing heart. To the child throwing up their arms and saying, I can never measure up to dad. I can never please mom. I can never be good enough. I can never behave well enough. And then if you were to look at the parallel passage in Ephesians 6.4, you would see that the same provoking dads and moms can lead them to anger. So it can push our children in one of two directions. One is just to lose heart. The other is for them to just become angry. And so how do we do that? How do we... Um, how are we as parents uh, perhaps guilty of this? And there are so many ways, but I'm just going to mention several to you. And you can take it and, and maybe build on this list. But the first is that we can provoke our kids through hypocrisy rather than authenticity. Hypocrisy instead of authenticity. We all have moments of inconsistency in our behavior, in our speech, in our attitudes. Every parent does. The best of men are men at best, and we are not fully uh, sanctified yet, the sight of heaven. But the point is, your children can tell if you are preaching one thing and living something different. They pick up on that really quickly. If you're maybe impressing other Christian brothers and sisters around you in public, but privately you talk differently, you, your speech and your attitudes and your actions are different. Man, your kids pick up on that. And so they quickly see that uh, dad doesn't really mean what he says. He doesn't really live this. We can also provoke our kids when we give in to fear instead of boldness. Now, all of us as parents are very concerned, as we should be, with uh, the world around us that's broken and, and promotes things that are ungodly and unholy and anti-gospel. Uh, so we rightly need to protect our kids. But sometimes... Parents, our parenting, our choice of schooling, our choice of education, our choice of family involvement in certain activities or even of church is driven by fear. I've got to shelter my child. I've got to keep them from experiencing anything that would be worldly. Listen, parents, someday you're going to release your kids. They're going to go into the world. And our job is to prepare them the best we can with the gospel tools that we have to, to be ready, to, to be a light for Christ in the world. So sheltering them based out of fear should not be what drives us. And that can actually lead your child to lose heart. It's like, man, dad's never going to let me, and you fill in the blank. Mom is never going to, she's always going to be hovering over me, pulling me back. I think a third way that we can um, provoke our kids where they may lose heart or give in to anger is by aloofness instead of involvement. 
by the way, I've been at some level at certain points guilty of all of these, so I, I'm just growing with you in this. But this is the idea that the parent isn't intimately involved. And I think this is especially true of dads often because we are more uh, away from home often, more not as emotionally in tune with our kids, perhaps, as our wife is. And um, so we can appear aloof. And then when uh, our child hits a crisis or a, a period of danger or disobedience or difficulty, you know, the principal calls, you know, that aha moment. Then we jump in as we should. But the problem is when things are just kind of apparently going smoothly, we are distant emotionally from our kids. We're distant relationally from our children. And that can cause our children to lose heart. And then as you watch them move into their teen years and then they launch from home and they have larger and larger worldview questions and we so desperately want to influence them. But if we've lost that relational edge, it's so much more difficult then to build those bridges with them. And then I think that we can... Uh, cause our kids to lose heart through sinful pride rather than gospel humility. Now, what are we talking about here? This is the idea that, um, well, there's a many ways that parental pride manifests itself, but I'm just going to give you an example. By refusing to humble ourselves before our child and ask their forgiveness for our sin. Let me give you an example. Let's say that... Uh, I've given in to sinful anger. And in that moment, you know, my daughter, my son pushed my buttons is the term we often use. But in reality, I have given in to sinful anger and I feel guilty about it. I can go to the child and there's a great gospel opportunity in that moment. I can look and I can say, honey, your dad said some things that were hurtful to you and they were wrong. And I said them with a wrong spirit. I was angry. And that was displeasing to God. And it was sinning against you. Will you forgive me? You know, that is a massive gospel opportunity. That's a Grand Canyon size opportunity for gospel humility to begin to ooze in and through the cracks and crevices of our brokenness in our relationships. Now, if I go to my daughter and I say, Honey, you know, dad's been under a lot of stress at work. You know, we got all those unwanted bills. And, you know, I, I was like stressed out and I was frustrated with you. And I probably said some things, but you understand it was because I was I was just stressed. That's not helpful, parents. That's not the gospel moment that I could take by just confessing to my child that I have sinned against you. What a powerful opportunity for the gospel. And you can think of many other ways that we can provoke our kids to lead them to either lose heart, be discouraged, or become angry. But those are a few that I wanted to touch on. So now what we want to do is move from expecting obedience in verse 20 to uh, parenting properly, treating them properly, to the flip side of that, if you look at verse 21, it's more what we're to stay away from, isn't it? Aren't you thankful that 
Paul in chapter 6 of Ephesians in verse 4, he gives us the counterpart, which is to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And by the way, the word Lord in Ephesians 6, 4, commentators say is not just referring to God in general, but to Christ specifically. Parents, think about it. What makes your parenting distinctively Christian? What makes it different than the, the cult members family down the street or the atheist family that seemingly have well behaved? They, they have good behavior. They're respectful. Maybe they're even to some degree moral. Maybe they say, yes, ma'am and no, sir. And you're like, man, I wish my kids were there. Listen, you, parent, have a distinctively Christ-centered parenting because of the gospel. What is the gospel? That Christ lived the life that you and I could not live. That he died the death that we deserve. That God is holy and we are sinful. And that God raised Jesus from the dead. And that when we repent, and that is turn from our sin and trust in Christ, we have newness of life. Isn't that the desire for your kids, parents? Ultimately, not that they would behave, but that God would transform them from the inside out. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that we desperately need to teach our kids the three R's of salvation. Number one, that they've been ruined by the fall. That's sin. Number two, that the only way they can be redeemed is through the blood of Jesus. And the third R is the absolute necessity of being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's the new life, the born again. And my wife and I pray that we continue to pray that for our kids and our grandkids, that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't care if they make six figures and get a degree from the finest institutions. Not that those are bad things, not that those don't have a part to play, but our heart should long that they would walk with Christ, their creator, that they would treasure Christ. And so this third point is let's be engaged in training our kids intentionally. If you will, go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, because I think we see this fleshed out here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, notice verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. As we send our kids into the world, we can think of the Israelites who were among idol-worshiping peoples. And daily they were hearing, the parents were hearing that they worship the one true and living God. Parents, are you in the hearing of God's truth continually? And then he goes on in verse 5, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So the question for moms and for dads is this. Do you love the Lord fervently? If I went and talked to your 5-year-old or your 15-year-old, would they tell me, my mom knows God, my dad loves Jesus? Would there be tangible proof of that? Not perfection! but in the direction of your life. And then, do you know the truth personally? Look at verse 6. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Really, we wouldn't even need to go outside of Colossians 3 for that. Because in chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, Let the word of Christ live in you, dwell in you richly, feel at home in your heart, be like a rich treasure stored away in your heart. Sometimes when I'm around someone who loves sports, as I do, Man, the stats from their favorite team will just gush out. It's been stored up in their heart. Parents, what Moses and what Paul are saying, what the Spirit is saying, is does the truth, first of all, is it richly in your own heart? Because you can't teach to your kids what isn't in your own heart, what you don't treasure and own yourself. And then the, 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 this all takes us to the point. Teaching our young diligently. Verses 7 through 9. You shall teach them diligently to your kids and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. There's a lot of cultural things unique to that culture there. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Um, the equivalent of that could be, and this don't, don't make a, you know, a mandate out of this, but like one thing that my parents did growing up is they put Bible verses or Bible quotes up on the wall in the house. You don't have to do that. But I still remember only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last because it was up in our living room. I still remember 2 Corinthians 5.15 that he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but live for him who died and rose again. Why do I remember that? Partly because my parents had it on the wall of our home. But notice the teaching in verse 7, the diligence with which we're to teach. The idea is not just formal instruction, but it's just natural conversation. You're talking about the ball game. You're talking about the weather. You're talking about the debate over abortion. You're talking about what's going on with the tornado warning. Or a thousand other things, inflation, stagflation, whatever you name. And you naturally use it as a teaching moment of how does gospel truth and gospel uh, implications speak into all of that. Life is God's big classroom, parents. Notice when you're walking by the way. When you're in your minivan, mom. And you're running the kids around to a thousand activities. There's going to be messy stressful moments, a conflict between two siblings and the third row behind you. There's a gospel opportunity in that. It's just in the everyday stuff of life, in the chaos of parenting. This isn't pie in the sky. This is just everyday ordinary. Let teaching happen. Sharpen. The, the word, uh, I don't want to get into it too much here, but it, it's kind of like you, you sharpen your sons and daughters, this diligence, this doing it speedily. You know, my, my wife always, uh, she's so gentle. She, she says it's so nice, but she's like, man, I wish, you know, you, you could sharpen my kitchen knives. Because I say, yeah, I can't even cut this tomato. Well, you know, if you would sharpen it, then it would just slice. That's what we're to do. We're to sharpen our kids by teaching them diligently. The truth of God. Now, if you are like me, this thing of parenting 
can be overwhelming, can be discouraging, can be convicting, can be exasperating. Some of you may be quietly thinking, why isn't there a verse in here that says, kids, don't provoke your parents? Where is that in the text? So I want to take you to this final point, and that is that Christ is exalted through our parenting weaknesses. Man, I, I even struggled with this yesterday, just feeling uh, regrets in my own life as a dad. Things that hurt. You probably have a few of those too. And so it's just a good opportunity in light of the fact that Colossians is about Christ and the good news of the gospel. We need to hear this as we go out from here. The first thing you could take note of is that your inadequacy prompts dependent prayer. Your, your, your inadequacy prompts dependent prayer. There is something called parental pride. We are so self-sufficient. And Paul Miller, in his wonderful book on prayer, he wrote this. He said, it took me 17 years to realize that I couldn't parent on my own. I was incapable of getting inside my kids' hearts. My prayer journal, he says, reflects both my inability to change my kids and my inability to change my self-confidence. That's why I need grace even to pray. Few things have grown me in desperate prayer than parenting. Those feelings of helplessness, parents, are not something to run away from because God is waiting for us inside of weaknesses. You ought to feel inadequate. Up in the heart of your child and God says, go disciple that. You ought to feel inadequate. I should as well. It's almost like God knew that the pride that is rooted within us is so deep that he created parenting to destroy our feelings of self-sufficiency. But you see, God is committed to moving us not just from, oh, I'm inadequate, to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, our adequacy is from God. God is enough. Number two, God can do much through your little. Do you ever feel like you have so little to offer as a parent? Maybe the kid only has another year at home. And the ruts that had, the relational ruts are so deep that you've reached an impasse. They just go in their room and you go in your room and it's so easy just to veg on social media and say, you know what, we can't, we can't, the, never the twain shall meet. But you know what, whether your kids are small or whether the window for your kids is smaller because they have a year left at home or they've already launched from home and maybe for a season they've even cut off relationship with you. You know what? God can take your little and do much with it. There's a great story. It's recorded in more than one gospel, but the feeding of the 5,000 where the people were hungry, 5,000 men plus women and kids. Do we have any food here? These people are hungry. Oh, we can't feed them, Lord. Well, we have five loaves and two fish from one small lad. And Jesus takes that little offering and he says, we can work with that. 
and he gives thanks to God with the little, and he feeds the many and leaves 12 basketfuls over, flowing. Listen, God can take your little and do much with it. You say, Ben, I don't know much about the Bible. I can't articulate it as well as this person over there or that person over there. I don't, I don't even know how to say it in children's or I, I can't connect it to my teenager. I don't know what to do with it. God can take your little. You can open your Bible and read five verses at night and pray with your kids in your own words. He can take your little and do much. Just take your little to Jesus and he will take that little and say, thank you. Thank you. God's here's another way that I think God is exalted through our weakness. And that is God's forgiveness includes parental sins. Sometimes we want to believe that God will forgive our private sins, but those relational sins, particularly parents, when we've hurt our child, when we've alienated them, it causes our heart to feel overwhelmed with guilt and condemnation. And that can lead to hopelessness. And ironically, if we don't move from the condemnation and the guilt to the forgiveness available at the cross, we will tend to repeat those same sins over and over and over again with our kids. I got to tell you that the older I get, the more precious the cross is to me. I can take comfort that Jesus died on the cross for my dad's sins. And, you know, when we come to God feeling bad about our sins, God is saying your sin is actually worse than you realize. It's big. It's bigger than what you realize. But I want you to know that my grace is even bigger than your sins. There is forgiveness at the cross. We saw that in Colossians 1:14. In him we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. We saw it in chapter 2. Verse 13 and 14, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You could picture your worst dad sins and your worst mom sins, and you can take them to the cross and have freedom and forgiveness and a no condemnation status. Then I would say this, God can weave, parents, your parental failures into his plan. Anybody think that favoring one child over against another is a good or a bad thing? How many of you would say it's a good thing to show favoritism? Now, that comes under the category of Colossians 3.21, provoking your kids, right? Go back to the Old Testament, Genesis 37. There was a dad named Jacob. Favors his 11th son over the first 10. Gives him a multicolored coat. Name is Joseph the dad. Brothers are ticked off. They're jealous. He gets sold as a slave. Ends up in Egypt. Fast forward to chapter 50 of Genesis. What happens? God even works through Jacob's failure and weaves it into the tapestry of protecting his chosen people as sheep herders in Goshen, in the land of Goshen. Now that is not to promote or make a license of our sin. There's other sermons and passages that mitigate against that. 
But it is to say that when I stand before the Lord someday, I could imagine him saying, Ben, you know what? That conversation you had with Marcia or with Justin or with this particular daughter, man, you really spoke grace to them. But then I can also step back and imagine him saying, now, Ben, let me show you some of your failures and your flaws as a dad. And let me show you what I did with that. Because he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28. So parents, go out of here armed with two things. Christ treasuring, Christ exalting parenting as your goal. I want to please him in all things. But go out armed with this. There is now no condemnation. Even for those who have parenting sins and weaknesses, may God give us his courage to believe what he says and then the confidence in the spirit to do what he's called us to do. Amen.